0: Let's turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 45. That's our text tonight, verses 7 all, all the way down to verse uh, 25. We're going to finish this chapter today. We're getting close to the end of this this book, and uh, much of what we will read again, as we've done in the measurements of the of the city and of the temple and of all of the land that was allotted and all. Uh, we're we're just going to kind of touch upon it a little bit, but try to deal with more of the spiritual aspects of, of the text. I want to start at verse 7. I know it says 8 through uh, 25. But I want to start at verse 7 just for content's uh, context sake. Now remember that God is giving this through an angel to Ezekiel. And this is really just a, a vision that Ezekiel is getting of the Messianic Temple, which is going to be in Jerusalem when Jesus comes and establishes his millennial kingdom there in the new temple that he's going to build and he's going to actually rearrange the whole city for all of this to happen in verse seven it says and a portion shall be for the prince that is a portion of the land shall be for the prince the prince is not jesus and it is not david we haven't we don't have a we don't have really a, a an identification for this person we'll talk more about him later because he's mentioned more later but uh... It is in Jesus, just so you'll know. And a portion shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other side of the oblation or the offering. Oblation is like an offering of the holy portion and of the possession of the city before the oblation of the holy portion. This may not make sense to you, but uh, I'll explain it in just a moment. And before the possession of the city from the west side westward and from the east side eastward. All that's saying is that the portion that is going to be for the prince is going to surround the holy place the sanctuary and the temple and the length shall be over against one of the portions from the west border unto the east border in the land shall be his possession in Israel and my princes shall no more oppress my people and the rest of the land shall they give to the house of Israel according to their tribes thus saith the Lord God let it suffice you O princes of Israel remove violence and spoil and execute judgment and justice. Take away your exactions from my people, saith the Lord God. You shall have just balances, and a just ephah, and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of one measure, that the bath may contain the 10th part of a homer, and the ephah the 10th part of a homer. The measure thereof shall be after the homer, and the shekel shall be 20 geras, 20 shekels, 5 and 20 shekels, 15 shekels shall be your manna and I'll explain all of that in just a second. But in our last study we focused our attention on the land of Israel during the millennial reign of Christ Jesus from his temple in Jerusalem and how it would be divided during that age. That is the whole land of Israel. The land that is going to be the land that was given as inheritance to the children of Israel, that section that was assigned to the Lord, another section assigned to the person known as the Prince, and then one section to each of the twelve tribes. I showed you a, a little picture last week of some of the divisions in the land, uh, but that you know th- those those kinds of, uh, of of pictures don't really give you the f- the full picture, as it were, of uh, of how much land you know when we think about what god promised abraham from from uh, egypt all the way to the uh, uh, to the uh, uh, river euphrates that, that's a big piece of land you know so if that was what was given then there's going to be certainly some division of that that land as well so we're that's why we're not you know busting our brains over these things because god knows exactly what parts are going to be given to what tribes and and what part he's going, to, he's going to have, you know, how, how long and how wide the, uh, you know, the temple portion is. And the prince's area that we're going to talk a little bit about tonight. But I want you to remember always that all the land belonged to the Lord. See, that, that's, that's the one thing we need to remember is that all the land belonged to the Lord. And so the Lord's portion, the, the Lord's portion came, uh, came the dimensions for that land that would be occupied by the prince. That's what we were reading earlier. Land to the west and to the east of the city portions and the whole holy areas occupied by the priests of Zadok and the Levites, which we've already covered uh, earlier on. But I want to take you back to Ezekiel 48 verses 21 and 22 because these were the, uh, these were the verses that gave us the exact measurements of the prince's land the land that belonged to the prince. And once again, the prince is unnamed at this point, but it isn't Jesus and it isn't David, and we've already given reasons why. Because this particular prince is going to offer sacrifices for himself. Jesus doesn't have to do that if he's the prince. Jesus is the prince of peace, but he's also the king of kings and the lord of lords. So what this prince represents then is a royal line, just as Israel has always had a royal line, along with a priestly line. And don't forget that when Israel was ruled by a king, there were, of course, that, that royal line and the priests. And the king was not to do the job of the priest. You know, so there was that uh, civil and religious, if you will, uh, oversight uh, for Israel. So in verse 21 of Ezekiel 48, it says, And the residue shall be for the prince, on the one side and on the other of the holy oblation or the area where the offerings were given and of the possession of the city over against the five and 20,000 of the oblation toward the east border. The five and 25 or the 25,000 that is mentioned here of course are the 25,000 reeds, the length that it is being given for this land and westward over against five and 20,000 toward the west border. So that toward the Mediterranean Sea then, there would be this Uh, You know these 25,000 reeds and then on the other side on the east side it would stretch out uh, in the direction of of the east uh, for another 25,000 reeds and I'll tell you how much that is in just a moment Over against the portions of the prince and it shall be the holy oblation and the sanctuary of the house shall be in the midst thereof Sanctuary of the house of course would be the temple Moreover, from the possession of the Levites and from the possession of the city, being in the midst of that which is the princes, between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall be for the prince." So the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin is on the south end, and that's for the prince. That is what is north of that. So according to these dimensions then, the 25,000 reeds on either side uh, is actually square. So it will be a land that is 8.3 miles square. 8.3 miles square. 8.3 miles in one direction, 8.3 miles in the other direction. Okay. So consider it just a very good large piece of land that belongs to the prince and it is going to be located in what is present day Jerusalem. Because wherever the temple is that's where God wanted it to be. Now we spend a good portion of time a few weeks ago talking about the city of David that this is where it Solomon was told to build the temple in the city of David which is just south of what is today the, the temple temple mount so the city of David is also included then within the confines of this 8.3 mile square piece of land that belongs to the prince the land itself will border each side of what is the holy portion, which includes the sanctuary and the temple and the property of the city. Remember, there's enough room for the city to be within that 8.3 square mile, or mile square uh, 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 property. Now, it's, significant, uh, it's a, a significant thing to know that when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom on earth, righteousness and justice will be front and center in the kingdom society, I, I think we would—I uh, think we would agree that <clears throat> there isn't one nation, since the creation of the world by God Himself, that has ever ruled with righteousness and justice. There, there hasn't been one nation that could rule in righteousness and justice uh, by men. So, when Jesus returns, His kingdom is going to be. Uh, founded upon righteousness and justice that will be front and center in the kingdom society and that for the first time as I said in human history since the Lord God walked with Adam in the garden before the fall because before the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3 God fellowshiped with the creation God fellowship with the one he created in his image in in that particular sense though it was in a very small scope that was God ruling in righteousness and justice and even then there was an establishment of a law and it was a very simple law I think we all know what the law was you could eat of any fruit of any tree in this whole garden that I've given to you except for one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because on the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to begin to die. You will die spiritually immediately, but you will begin to die physically. And that's what happened to man, and it's been happening ever since. And all of a sudden, time began in a way that man never expected it to begin. There was a, there was a countdown that started in the garden a Countdown to the end when everything winds down completely, and of course, you, you we know that by the ages of the people that lived during the time of of uh after Adam and after Seth, all the way through Moses, they got younger, you know, they, they, they died earlier and they died earlier until it came to a, a kind of a, a, a balanced. Uh, time of years, you know, mostly around 70 years. As a matter of fact, God uh, talks about that at at one point. But anyway, I mentioned last time that the previous kings and the royalty in Israel never had the kind of property that the prince of the millennial kingdom will have. And what that means is that the prince who rules over the people there at that time in whatever capacity that that Christ gives to this prince... He will rule over the people with contentment. He will be content with the land and wealth that he will inherit. Well, I think I'd be content if I had 8.3 miles square of land, you know, don't you? wouldn't you? That's a lot, Mine might not be content because I would have to mow it, you know, because that's a lot of land to mow. But I don't know that I'd, I'd have to do that. But the point of the matter is, you know, he would be content and with the wealth that he will inherit and there will be no need any longer see though this is a, there's a purpose for all of this there will be no need any longer to oppress the people by stealing their allotted land because the sad thing is that there were a number of priests that did that they began to exact large portions of taxes they would begin to take things from the people for their own lavish lifestyles and I'm not just talking about nations of the world I'm talking about some of the kings of Israel and and this is some of what we're, we're dealing with tonight notice in verse 8 going back to Ezekiel 45 it says "And the land shall be his possession in Israel and my princes shall no more oppress my people and the rest of the land shall they give to the house of Israel according to their tribe. So the rulers of Israel from here on are never to repeat the abuses of the past. They are never to repeat the abuses of the past, for there were some of Israel's rulers who seized the property of the weak and of the poor through oppression and theft and violence. In recording this vision, Ezekiel cried out that this wicked, unjust behavior was to stop. Now, the princes of Israel were to repent of their wickedness and start to do what is just and what is right. Consider the next few verses, verses 9 through 12. Thus saith the Lord God, Let it suffice you, O princes of Israel, In a sense, he's saying, let it be sufficient for you. He says, remove violence and spoil. And execute judgment and justice. Take away your exactions from my people. What is an exaction? The word exaction, in in some translations, it says, uh, don't dispossess your people. Don't evict your people from their land. From the land that I've given them. He says, take away your exactions from my people, saith the Lord God. You shall have just balances. Accurate balances. You're not going to take things away from people because you, you, you kind of rig the system. Adjust ephah, adjust bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of one measure, that the bath may contain the tenth part of a homer. We're not talking baseball here. I'll explain what a homer is and what a bath and an ephah is. In verse 12, it says, well, the measure thereof shall be after the homer. And the shekel shall be twenty geras. And once again, we'll look at what this all means. 20 shekels, 5 and 20 shekels, 15 shekels. You add all of that up, that's 60 shekels, by the way. That's, what's, that's what this breakdown is about. It's 60 shekels shall be your maneh. That's Hebrew. The, the term that is used after that in, in some translations is mina, M-I-N-A, which is another form of, of uh, uh, denomination, if you will, of, of what can be paid for something. So again, while the vision given to Ezekiel portends and foretells what is to come in the millennium, okay? So he's talking about what is yet to come. It hasn't happened yet. And it hasn't happened yet in our time either. It's yet to come. Why? Because Jesus hasn't come back to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. So this is foretelling what is to come in the millennium. And while that's what the vision is about, the words given were were being heard by the generation that was in captivity. They were listening to the prophet. They were hearing what God was telling the prophet and what the prophet was telling them. And they were in captivity still, awaiting their return to the land of Israel when their seven years of captivity would be over. They they were to return to the land and they were to turn away from violence and oppression of the past. So the message was not just for the time of, of Jesus because, you know, when Jesus is ruling and reigning in righteousness and justice, there's not going to be a whole lot of crime going on but when they would return to Israel and they would return to to, uh, to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the city and all they had to make a commitment not to be violent and not to oppress one another they were to do what was right and what was just they were to stop stealing the people's property and they were to use accurate scales and volume standards of measurement and standard units for measurement of weights that's why in the world today we have all kinds of standards for measurements of, of, of different you know weights whether it's pounds or kilos or uh, you know we, we've either gone from inches to millimeters or whatever you know wh- wherever it is here you know we still stay on the on the kind of the the Western thing, you know, everybody else has gone to, gone to the, the metric system. But uh, nonetheless, it's still, it's still measured so that everything is accurate, so that you're not paying more, uh, you know, if, if somebody tells you, well, this weighs so much. No, I mean, you know, that's what scales are for. Accurate scales, just balances are from the Lord. But if you have false balances, that's an abomination, because you're out there to steal from people. That's the whole point of this this whole thing, that's part of the Proverbs. So, here's the thing, Here, here's what people do though. And I think we've learned this, right? About 10 years ago, if you went out to buy a, you know, a pound of coffee, it would cost you, you know, four bucks, let's say, I'm, I'm just saying. A pound of coffee, four bucks. And you go to the store, they have a smaller can now, and they, 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 you know, they, they, they lessen the, the amount in the can, but the price is up. You know, so they, they didn't change. They have to stay accurate on how much they're giving you. But now it costs more because of, of supply and demand. So it's, it's a crazy thing. God is just saying, be, be honest. Be honest of how we measure things for one another so that you're not stealing from somebody else. Be fair, in other words, when this stuff comes. So Ezekiel records Israel's religious and civil readers' Uh, I'm sorry, civil leaders callous disregard for the people's rights. This is what uh, he's done in the book of Ezekiel. For example, turn to Ezekiel 22, verses 23 through 27. See, we've already covered this. But this was a while back, so we're going back a little ways. Ezekiel 22, verse 23, it says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed nor reigned upon in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the uh, the, uh, prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about the religious leaders. The priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane neither have they showed difference between the clean or the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my sabbath and I am profaned among them in other words they've made me a common thing god says they've made me common now stop and think about that statement that god makes about himself and what the priests have done the priests who were supposed to serve the Lord in the temple with fear with the fear of a holy God where is that fear today where is that fear you know when a a person talks about God as the man upstairs there's no fear of God because number one he's not a man in the sense of The fact that he's not like you and me. He's holy. In fact, Isaiah chapter six says he's holy, holy, holy. It makes it clear that that his holiness abounds above all, all, all of his attributes, above all of his characteristics. He's holy. So, when the priests, all of a sudden, make everything commonplace, and the things in the temple and the things that were used for the worship of God has now become commonplace, then what's the next step? You make God common. But he's anything but common, is he? isn't He? he? He's anything but common. He's above all of his creation because he created all things. And to begin to treat him as like anyone else, that's, that's a grave. Uh, that's a grave step to take. Not brave, grave. Grave means serious, but I mean, what's next, but the grave if you keep that up, if you know what I mean. So her priests have violated my law, profaned my holy things. They put no difference between the holy and profane, neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I'm profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey. Now here, the the priests and also the princes. What is that? The religious and the civil. The religious and the royal. The, The leadership of the nation is stealing, they are stealing the people blind. They're wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. Not of other nations, of their own nation. And I'm not gonna say that, you know, go to other nations and do that over there is right either. Because God had his standards for his people when he commanded them to take a city or to take a, a people. God was judging them. But they were to do as God said, not as they wanted to do. Ezekiel 34, now, go uh, a few chapters forward. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, verse 1, verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Who are the shepherds of Israel? Religious leaders. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, uh, uh, prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. What what was the main job of a shepherd? It was to feed the sheep. It was to feed the sheep. Abraham was a shepherd. All of his sons were, you know, well, Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob, all the sons of Isaac were shepherds, in a sense. They They all did different things. But it was some part of of being a shepherd that went through all the line that would come all the way down to Jesus. David was a shepherd. And I mean, we're, we're not talking about like a really, you know, great job because, you know, he was the youngest of his brothers. He was out there in the fields doing the shepherd thing as the youngest one. The one that was least among the brothers and when Samuel came to the house of Jesse because God sent him there and said out of this household will come a king for Israel Saul had already failed God and Jesse says okay let me go get my sons and you know you know here comes the fashion show and here you know one one son at a time comes out you know and does whatever they do and then Samuel says no not that one no not that one not that one Going through the whole list of, of people. And, and, and eventually Samuel had to say, well, do you have any other sons? Uh, yeah, well, I have one more. He's out in the field. He's a shepherd. He's you know, kind of sweaty and all that kind of stuff. But he's out there. He says, go get him. And they brought David to see Samuel, for Samuel to see him. And Samuel saw him and said, this is the, this is the king. The shepherd. And for the most part in in all of his life, Samuel stayed faithful to the Lord as a shepherd, as a shepherd for Israel. Yes, he made his mistakes, big mistakes. Abraham made his mistakes, didn't he? Moses made some mistakes, all human. The fact of the matter is, God knew exactly who he wanted to be the shepherds of his people. By the way, Moses was a shepherd, wasn't he? The point is, a shepherd is to feed the flock. A shepherd is never to beat the flock. A shepherd is never to steal from the flock for himself. That's why Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd cares for his sheep. The good shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep know him. So do you know your shepherd? I hope you know your shepherd. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, and you clothe you with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. Now remember, he's talking about, spiritually speaking, the flock of Israel. The flock of Israel We're the sheep of God. They belong to him. And they clothed themselves and fed themselves on the meat and the, and, 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 the, and the wool of the sheep. The diseased have ye not strengthened? Which signifies that they had no compassion. Neither have you healed that which was sick. Neither have you bound up that which was broken. When you you read the psalms that David wrote, David wrote psalms from the perspective of a shepherd. Especially Psalm 23, and I know most of you know that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. Comforts. He waters, he feeds, he cares, he tends. But these guys, what were they doing? Neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth and none did search or seek after them. They only cared about themselves. The deeper problem surfaced now to the top. What was the deeper problem of these these, uh, false shepherds? It was greed. Greed. And so... It was incumbent upon them to use accurate scales, an accurate ephah, and an accurate bath. The ephah, by the way, was a dry measure, and the bath was a liquid measure, obviously. Ephah was dry measure. A bath was a liquid measure. Each of these was considered a tenth of a homer, The homer being approximately 50 gallons or about 6 bushels. So this is giving you somewhat of a a perspective of what these measurements were like. It's interesting that the word homer in the Hebrew is related to the Hebrew word for donkey. Hamer, suggesting that this was a donkey load or what a donkey would carry if a donkey carried it, it was, it was then a homer. And, and, and so he carried it carried it away. Not a home run. A homer. Okay. That's why I say it's not baseball we're talking about. The shekel also was defined by the Lord through Ezekiel. A shekel at that time consisted of 20 geras. Uh, don't worry about what gara is because the shekel weighed in at, a, at just under 11.5 grams that was a shekel or about two-fifths of an ounce and the gerah was Israel's smallest unit of weight 20 gara's made one shekel 20 gara's made one shekel that's seen all the way back in Exodus chapter 30 verse 13 this they shall give everyone that passes among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of a sanctuary. A shekel, notice in the text, a shekel is 20 garas. A half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. So that would be 20 gerahs, or I should say 10 garas, right? Because a shekel is 20 gerahs, and there was a half shekel that was the, the shekel of the sanctuary. Leviticus 27, verse 25 says, And all thy estimations shall be according to the shekel <clears throat> of the sanctuary. 20 gerahs shall be the shekel. So it's 20 garas, my my mistake. Numbers 3, 47. Thou shalt even take five shekels apiece by the pole. After the uh, shekel of the sanctuary shalt thou take them. The shekel is 20 garas. So these are very exacting measures that God is giving to his people. In verse 12, if you look at verse 12 of our text, the Lord breaks down 60 shekels, which I you know, which was subdivided three times, but it, it's broken down uh, 60 shekels to equal one mane or mina, as some translations have it, which was actually the standard measurement for a mana in Babylon. So what, what they were measuring back in Babylon while they were in captivity was exactly the measurement that they were to keep for uh, the, uh, for the uh, mane, which, uh, which is 60 shekels. So, now, here, here's the question. Why are all these measurements so important? Why are they so important? And once again, they are to remind us that the Lord is presenting us with things that are to be considered literal. In other words, why go through all of these numbers? Why go through all of these measurements? Why go through all of the dimensions? You know, the measuring of the temple. Think about that. We talked about it already. The measuring of the temple was to be exact. Why? Why? Why go through all of this numbering and measuring and dimensions if they are only metaphoric, if they are only symbolic? If it's symbolic, we don't have to know the exact measurements, do we? If it's it's symbolic of something spiritualized, then we don't need to know measurements. But God says, I want you to know measurements because I'm going to build a temple in Jerusalem My son is going to come, and he's going to establish his kingdom, he's going to build his temple, he's going to flatten the land, he's going to raise the mountain, that temple is going to be above everything that there is, and this is how long it's going to be, this is how wide it's going to be, this is how big it's going to be. Don't you think that that means it's literal? It also means that God is serious. It means that God is serious about making sure that everything is according to his plans and not ours. Not one thing was supposed to be taken out of line when Moses made the tabernacle. Everything had to be to the exact measurement for the tabernacle and remember the tabernacle itself could fit in this room. The tabernacle could fit in this room. but it had to be exact. Everything, the kind of wood that was used, the kind of the amount of gold that would be put to plate the wood that was shaped into tables, shaped into the ark, shaped into all kinds of things. God was saying, I'm serious. So I think he's equally serious about a temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem when Jesus comes. So of all of that, the Lord is serious about what he's already planned for himself. So consider then the offering, and i got to really put it in overdrive now. Consider the offering and the usage of these measurements. Let's go now to Ezekiel 45, 13. And we're going to close here in, in, in record time. This is the oblation that you shall offer. The sixth part of an ephah of a homer of wheat, and you shall give the sixth part of an ephah of a homer of barley. Concerning the ordinance of oil, the bath of oil, remember an ephah is dry measure, a bath is liquid measure. Uh, You shall offer the 10th part of a bath out of the core. That's another measurement, by the way, which is a homer of 10 baths. So a core is a homer of 10 baths. For 10 baths are a homer. (laughs) So, all right, don't get confused. I'm not going to there's, there's not a test after this uh, today and one lamb out of the flock out of 200 and out of the fat pastors of Israel for a meat offering and for a burnt offering and for peace offerings to make reconciliation for them saith the Lord God so they are to offer these things for reconciliation purposes we'll talk about that in a moment all the people of the land shall give this oblation for the prince of in Israel so they're to give this actually to the prince who is not Jesus and who is not David but is this one prince that we've talked about. But notice what, he, what it says about him, verse 17. And it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, and meat offerings, and drink offerings in the feasts, and in the new moons, and in the Sabbaths, in all solemnities of the house of Israel. So in everything that is going to take place in the temple of Jesus during the time of the millennium, this prince is going to be the one to bring these things to the uh, priests for all of the offerings that are going to happen on a daily basis that will happen on the feast days that are given here in just a moment on the Sabbath and all the solemnities of the house of Israel he shall prepare the sin offering and the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make reconciliation for the house of Israel so without going into any great detail besides what we've already learned about the measurements this passage speaks of the tithes and of the offerings of the people to Christ. They are to give a specified offering for their grain, oil, and sheep. They are to give this offering to the prince who, as the people's representative, will collect these gifts and use them to maintain the sacrifices in the temple to be used in the feasts for the new moons and the Sabbaths. What are we to consider about this? Well. We know that Jesus our Messiah made atonement for us, paying the price and the penalty for our sins. And he reconciled us to God, amen? That's what Jesus already did. He did that already. This is not a matter of Jesus doing it again. It's not a matter of Jesus dying again. He doesn't have to die again. He's already King of kings and Lord of lords in this particular, in this, in this particular uh, presentation of what is yet to come. So his great gift of salvation should stir us up to give our lives to him and for him. It should stir the people's lives to give unto the one who already died for their salvation, his love. And and I'm kind of glad we're coming down to this issue of love today, because it's Valentine's Day, right? People have so many different concepts of love. What, what, what is love? We don't understand love unless we see what Jesus did on the cross. That's love. That is love. But his love for us should stir us up to give offerings to him. Honestly, it should stir us up. In fact, our offering should be an expression of our love for him. Never out of obligation, but always for, from sincere gratitude for all he's done on our behalf. There may be many people, you know, getting ready to do their own sacrifices for the next 40 days because today was not only Valentine's Day, it's also the first day of Lent for those who follow the liturgical calendar. It's not just Catholics, but there's others too that will follow the liturgical calendar and consider Lent, you know, this time when we have to sacrifice. The, the believer in Jesus Christ has to sacrifice every day. We, we, we don't take 40 days, you know, to, to do that out of a whole year, 365 days. What happened to the other 325 or 20 days? So when you consider what's happening here, this is just a reminder that what Jesus did on our behalf should stir our hearts to be like him every day of our lives. Gifts of love are never without sacrifice. Gifts of love are never without sacrifice. As a matter of fact, consider the cross. And just remember that when Jesus gave, he freely gave. Freely gave. The creator of the heavens and the earth gave himself for us. Became like us. Put on himself flesh. Flesh to do what none of us could ever do for ourselves. Deuteronomy 16 verse 17 says, Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord thy God which he has given thee. Every man shall give as he is able. Now that it was within the community of Israel. Well we are in a community as well. We are in a community of believers in Jesus Christ. And whereas we look at the pattern in the Old Testament as being a pattern for us to follow in some, in some way, this is now how we are to live our lives, as being able to give as we're able, or as giving as we are able. Consider Proverbs 3 verse nine, honor the Lord with thy substance, with the first fruits of all thine increase. You know, if a person looks around to find a way not to give unto the Lord, whether it is to a church or a ministry of of any kind, when they're looking for ways of not giving, then they're not giving giving unto the Lord. They're not giving unto the Lord. Think about what what Malachi, Malachi 3, verse 10, what what God said in in that passage. This is a classic passage. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse. That there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. God says, you bring your tithes into the storehouse, and guess what? I'm going to bless you. When you bring your your tithes into the storehouse, you bring it from your heart, man, God's going to bless you. But if you take, uh, you know, your your checkbook and say, well, you know, Lord, I gave you this much, but I haven't seen any of the blessing, I, I think you're missing the point. You're just missing the point. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, to his disciples that he was sending out. He said, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out the devils. And he said, freely you have received, freely give. Have you received something from the Lord? Then go out and give. Go out and give. Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, he says, But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. Sowing means, of course, spreading seed, casting it out. He who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. That goes along with uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. But see, is there a purpose in your heart? Because if you don't have a purpose in your heart to give, you're not going to give. And who's, who's the one who's going to lose the blessing? Not the Lord. God will always provide. The one who loses the blessing is the one who doesn't give. So he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, let me get back here. Every man as he purposes in his heart to so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity. You know, like the guy that, you know, he's got his offering and then the the bag goes by, you know, and you go, that's that's grudgingly. God says, don't give that way. If you're going to be that way, don't give. I don't need it. Not of necessity. That's the one that that bothers me when when people give of necessity in the sense that somebody stands up here and says, you know what? We're going to take another offering today because the Lord told me there wasn't enough in the first offering. Yikes. Yikes. I've seen in churches where they take three offerings until they get it right. Well, who determines that? But yet they're the ones that say, oh, we're we're prosperous people. Yeah, because you're robbing people blind. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. The last section of this chapter deals with the, the, the three annual services or festivals or feasts that will be observed in the Messianic Kingdom. So I'm, I'm just moving forward here. Verse 18, thus saith the Lord God, in the first month and the first day of the month, thou shalt take a young bullock without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. Now this is the Messianic Temple. God says, cleanse, it, cleanse the sanctuary. Don't forget the priests. Are still human. This is still human here. We're on Earth. We're on the Earth. Okay, all right. Cleanse the sanctuary, and the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering, put it upon the posts of the house, upon the four corners of the uh, of the settle of the altar, and upon the posts of the gate of the inner court. And so uh, thou shalt do the seventh day of the month for every one that erreth. In other words, there will people be that will cause error. They will sin, for him that is simple. So shall you reconcile the house. In the first month, and the fourteenth day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. That goes along with Passover. And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. In seven days of the feast he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bullocks and seven rams without blemish uh, daily, the seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering and he shall prepare a meat offering of an ephah for a bullock, and an ephah for a ram, and a hen of oil for an ephah. Uh, in the seventh month, in the fifteenth day of the month, shall he do uh, the like in the feast of the seven days, according to the sin offering, according to the burnt offering, and according to the meat offering, and according to the oil. The first annual feast, in verses 18 and 19, will be on New Year's Day. First day of the month, first day of the week, first day of the month. Um, Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah. It is for the sake of purifying the temple. Despite their holy calling, the priests will still be sinful human beings whose presence will contaminate the temple, which is a symbol of God's presence. Cleansing the temple annually will remind them of their own sinful nature and their need for cleansing. The second annual feast or festival will be the Passover, verses 21 through 24. This will be observed as it was under the law of Moses. It will last seven days and will include the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Take note, if you will, that the prince is to make a sin offering for himself as well as for all the people. That's verse 22 again reason to understand that the prince is not Jesus. Jesus does not have to make a sin offering for himself. So this indicates clearly that the prince is not Christ, but rather an appointed official. The third annual feast will be the Feast of Tabernacles. The offerings will be the same made at the Passover. Now it is important to understand that these special festivals and offerings symbolize the atonement of that our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ made for us to reconcile us with God. By bringing their special offerings the people will celebrate the fact that he indeed died for their sins. The cleansing of the temple on the first day of the first month, Rosh Hashanah, will celebrate the power of Christ's blood to cleanse the priests and the worship sinners. The Passover sacrifices will celebrate not only Christ's power to deliver his people from Egyptian slavery, but also his power to deliver them from the slavery of sin and death. And the feasts, or I should say the Feast of Tabernacles will celebrate Christ's power to bring his people safely into the promised land of heaven where they will live forever. Now, let us never forget that Jesus died to save us from the bondage of sin and death, and to give us everlasting life. That is something we should never forget. That should be ingrained in our minds, in our hearts, and our understanding, that Jesus died to save us from the bondage of sin and death and to give us everlasting life. I want to leave you with a few verses that pertain to that great sacrifice of Jesus. The first coming, of course, from Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Where it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That is, can only be about the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant of God. It isn't Israel, it isn't some other person, it's Jesus. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who else can that be describing but Jesus? Nobody else. Not a prophet, not a priest, only Jesus. Romans 5 verses 6 through 9 for when we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly that lets us know who we were (laughs) for scarcely for a righteous man will uh, will one die yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So this is what Jesus Christ did for us, and this is what they will be commemorating when they offer the sacrifices in the temple during the time of of, uh, the millennial reign. Galatians 1, verses 3-5, through notice that it says, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And lastly, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood." So it's very clear then that the sacrifices in the temple of the Messiah during the time of the messianic kingdom, the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, is not just to memorialize what Jesus did, but it's to get the plain, plain picture you, they had to see it just like the generations previous to them would have to see what the Messiah did for them. And so even though there's a cleansing that has to be done because again, the people living on the earth during the time of the millennial kingdom, things are going to change in the on the earth because uh, Christ is going to reign in righteousness and truth. But the people will still have to choose to live for Christ, choose to follow Christ, choose to serve Christ in in the capacity of the King of kings and the Lord of lords.